Good morning. My name is Beth Govier. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, which can be found on page 1003 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or you know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Mechizeldeck. The word of the Lord. All right, so we're going to be looking at uh, our text this morning. And I would love for you to keep it open so you can... uh check and make sure that what I'm saying is actually biblical. Uh, And uh, we um, are going to look at it as we return to our series of sermons on the book of Hebrews. As you might recall, Hebrews is written to people who were Jewish Christians, and they were tempted to return to the old covenant religion. Uh, If they did that, that would afford uh, them some privileges, some legal protections with the state in the Roman Empire. So there was kind of a tempting opportunity, possibility for them. And the whole letter is written to, to tell them that if you return to the old covenant religion, if you go back to the temple, you go back uh, away from Christ, this departure will be fatal. There's no hope outside of Christ. Jesus is better than any other option out there. And so that's the thrust of the letter. Over and over again, we hear this one message that Jesus is better. Whatever option you are considering, Jesus is simply better. 
Now, as they're considering going back to the old religion, the whole thing was organized around the temple with its priests, its sacrifices, its rituals. And so the, the role of high priest becomes very important. The high priest at the temple would have been from the line of Aaron, the old the first priest in Israel. And so the author of Hebrews in our text compares Jesus and Aaron. And he's showing us that Jesus is better than Aaron. So don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the old religion. Stay with Jesus. He's a better high priest. So that's what I want to do this morning is to show you from the text that Jesus is an excellent high priest that is worthy of our attention, our faithfulness, and our going through him to God. That's my goal this morning. So let's work through the text together first. As we have been doing, we're going to look through these verses and make sure we understand the flow of the argument. And I will explain a couple of uh, maybe confusing phrases here. So chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that's kind of the heart of our passage. That's where I'll spend most of my time as we, as we talk about Jesus' priesthood. Notice the commands here. Two commands in this first section. Number one, let us hold fast our confession. So let's hold on to the gospel. Let's hold on to this new religion, the New Testament, new covenant religion. And secondly, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace through Christ. So don't leave Christ. Don't leave this religion. Stay with it. And as you stay with it, make sure you go to the throne of grace, go to God directly with confidence through Christ. Jesus is such an excellent high priest, much better than the Jerusalem temple can offer, that we must hold on to him and go to God through him and expecting help in our time of need and our struggle to persevere. What makes Jesus such an excellent high priest is twofold. There's really two big pieces to our text. Number one, he is the Son of God, and thus he is divine. He is God. Number two, he is human, and thus able to sympathize with our struggles, since he himself went through them. So this combination in one person of a divine being and a human being that serves as one person, as our high priest, allows us to maintain a relationship with God. This divine human combination in one person is, is the theological underpinning of this whole passage, and we'll return to that as we look at it more closely. Beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, now, here the author explains to us what the ordinary Old Covenant Aaronic priesthood is. Such priest's job description was to represent people before God and to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of people to God. That's what priests do. That's, that's the description of a priest. Priests are mediators between God and people. Priests like Aaron, the first priest, and you can read about him in Exodus 28... And then also about priestly duties in Leviticus 8 and 9, if you want some homework. Exodus 28 and following, and then Leviticus 8 and 9. It gives you a lot of information about Old Testament priesthood. Priests like Aaron could really sympathize with the people they were representing before God. And that is because they dealt with the same struggles that everybody deals with. They were human, and they had the same weaknesses that all of us have. 
The problem was that even though they struggled with the same things we struggle with, they were also sinners. So they had to bring sacrifices on their behalf first before they could approach God on our behalf. Of course, they did not do that on their own authority, but they were appointed by God to their office, starting with Aaron and then his children and his grandchildren and so on. So it was God's appointment. Now the next couple of verses, 5 and 6 in chapter 5, now the transition is to Jesus. How is he like Aaron and how is he unlike Aaron? Like Aaron, Jesus too was appointed by God. However, unlike Aaron, his divine appointment was certainly more impressive. There are two quotations here. Psalm 2, verse 7. This is a royal psalm that talks about Jesus as being enthroned as the eternal king in David's line. Not just another king, but an eternal king in David's line. And then Psalm 110.4, part of the passage we read this morning, Jesus is designated as an eternal priest. So he's both king and priest. He's both the eternal king in David's line and an eternal priest. But the priest does not come from Aaron's line. This is important. Jesus was not related to Aaron. He was related to David. And thus the kingship makes sense. But the priesthood has to be different. It's not in the same order. It's not in the same category as Aaron's priesthood. It's in a different order. And that's when the name of Melchizedek is brought up. I won't talk a lot about Melchizedek this morning. It's not because I don't want to. It's because we're going to deal with him more specifically when we get to chapter 7 of Hebrews. For us, what we need to know for today is that Melchizedek is a different kind of priesthood. It's a different order. It's not like Aaron. It's a higher level of priesthood, and it's in that order of priesthood that Jesus comes and becomes our high priest. Verses 7 through 10 at the end of our, chapter, our passage. Because Jesus is a different kind of priest, and here, of course, the assumption of his divinity is inescapable, the question is, can he really represent human beings? If he's a divine kind of king, king and the divine kind of priest, can he accurately represent us, human, fallen, sinful beings? And the answer is yes. He can represent us because he himself experienced all our struggles. Jesus offered, us, offered up prayers with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverence or his piety, his faithfulness to God. Because like our lives... Jesus' life on earth in the flesh was marked by suffering, by tears, and by loud cries to God. Probably his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane is in view here. God answered his prayers and delivered him from death by resurrecting him, bringing him back from death. So Jesus went further into suffering than we have because he actually experienced death and yet was still delivered from death by God. We'll talk about it later a little bit. He learned obedience through what he suffered. This is all related to how he can represent us, how he can sympathize with us. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, some read this and say, well, was he disobedient before and then he suffered and he became obedient? No, because he was never disobedient. He was never sinful. 
The way Jesus learned obedience through suffering is he learned to obey God in the midst of suffering, like we do. In the midst of suffering that is typical of the human experience after the fall, he still obeyed God. He became perfect through it. What does that mean? He became perfectly qualified to be the source of our salvation. By going through suffering and yet obeying God, he gained a qualification to become a priest that understands because of his experience and a priest who can effectively intercede for us because he never sinned. He obeyed God perfectly, learned obedience in suffering. And all who follow him and stick with him can count on his Melchizedekian priesthood to be eternally effective in connecting them with God. Okay, that's our text. Everything hinges on this comparison of Aaron and Christ. Christ is a different high priest, a better high priest, one who's able to sympathize with us, but also one who's able to intercede for us effectively. Now, you read that, and I understand how many of us can think this is interesting, maybe. Maybe it's boring to me, but maybe it's interesting. I like the connections between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's fun for me to read Leviticus and, and see all these parallels. And it's interesting to me maybe to read about the Old Testament priests with their beards and turbans and, 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 and the 12 tribes of Israel on their breast. I mean, that's exciting maybe. Maybe for some of you, you'll skip over those, those passages. And yet, the question is, why does it matter to us today? Is it just a point of interest? Is it just a sermon you kind of have to get through to get a little bit of a fuller picture of Scripture, but really it's not relevant or practical to us this morning? I remember I preached on this passage or part of this passage in Chicago one time. It was a weird Sunday. We had a women's retreat, and, and most of our women were gone. So it was just this male-dominated room. And we had a visitor who was a man, a young man, and I don't know what he thought our church was. It's just like all men everywhere. And he came in and I preached on, and I remember preaching well, I remember preaching on this text. And my sermon was seven glorious truths about the high priesthood of Christ. And I was just so excited because I felt like it was just so important to preach on that. And he was there and then after the sermon he came to me and he says, yeah, that was fine, but you guys talk about anything practical. You talk about anything practical. And I'm thinking, how can this get any more practical than what I just preached? And yet in his mind, uh, this was irrelevant. It didn't really intersect with his everyday life. Well, I thought then and I think now that it does not get any more practical than this, and I hope to show it to you this morning. Now, it's not practical in the sense of uh, like practical, this is how you get stains out of your tablecloth. You know, that's practical, right? Or this is how you change oil in your lawnmower. That's, it's not like that practical. But it is immediately applicable to our lives today. And in fact, I think this passage speaks to exactly what our main struggle in life is. And thus, if we learn from this passage, we should be able to put it into daily practice. This is what I think practical means when it comes to Scripture. It's immediately applicable. This is something you can apply to your life today. And your life should change significantly if you apply the truths from this text. 
Now, this is what I mean by how practical it is. We all struggle. There has never been a single human being that has not struggled. Now, what do we do with our struggles when you're hurting, when you're confused, when you have questions? What do you do with them? Instinctively, we go to God. Instinctively, we go to God. Not everybody does that. But everyone has done it at least once or twice in their lives. Now, they may have decided that it's not worth doing that anymore, but everybody at a certain point in their life is, has turned to God in some way or to whatever they think God is, somebody in charge, somebody who has the answer, somebody who should be able to help me. They turn to Him and they bring these struggles to Him. It's natural for us as God's creatures to do that. And when you have done that, Imagine, right, and maybe you are this morning in that particular state when you're coming to God and you're needy, you're broken, you're tempted, you're anxious, you're hurting, you're confused, you're tired, you're helpless, you're hopeless, you're lonely. Whatever struggle that you bring to God this morning, as you bring those struggles to God, there are two questions that you are asking. And depending on how, how those questions are answered will determine, determine your relationship with God from then on. The questions are, and that's, by the way, our outline that we'll be working through. The questions are, number one, does He care? I come to Him with all that I'm dealing with, my first question is, does God care? It's not, does God exist? It's, does God care? If He doesn't exist, He doesn't care. But if He exists, He might not care still. So the main question is, does He care about my life, what I'm going through? And the second question is, can He help me? He may care, but can He help me? Lots of people care and they can't help me. But does God care, number one and number two, can He help me? How you answer these two questions, and we all answer them, consciously or not. Not everybody writes it down in their journal, but we all answer these questions. And how you answer them determines what you do with God for the rest of your life. If you answer one or both of those questions negatively, so He doesn't care and or He cannot help me, you cannot remain a Christian. You can't remain a Christian. That may mean you abandon the faith altogether. We know many stories in our own circles of influence where someone has gone through a significant trial, they brought all of that to God, and they have concluded that God doesn't care or that He can't help them. And they have left the faith altogether. For most of us, that's not as dramatic. For most of us, when we answer those questions, both or one of them, negatively, we become a functional atheist while still officially affirming our affiliation with Christ, and yet we live like God doesn't exist. So one option is abandoning the faith, faith altogether and being honest. The other question is somehow holding on to the faith and, and still claiming to be a Christian, but functionally living as if God doesn't care and He can't help me. This is why people stop praying. 
This is why people stop coming to church. This is why they stop reading their Bibles. They stop singing to God. Is because they have concluded, consciously or not, that God either doesn't care or that He can't help them or both. Our text this morning answers these two fundamental, life-defining, religion-forming questions in the positive. Our text tells us that God does care and that God can help us if we go to Him with our struggles. And all of it is rooted in what seems like an abstract idea, and that is of Christ's high priestly office and ministry. Now, I cannot actually imagine, this is not a hyperbole, but I cannot imagine anything that is more relevant or practical to us this morning. Because we all struggle, we all try to bring our struggles to God, and we all must answer these two questions. Does He care, and can He help me? So let's dig into it. I'm just following these two questions throughout the sermon. Does God care in Christ Specifically in his high priestly office and ministry, we find that God does care, that he does understand, and that we are in fact important to him, even as we bring our struggles to him. How can I be so sure? I am sure that he cares because he became human. In fact, we may say he cares so much about me that he became like me, so that he can experience my life, so that he can care even more about me. God became human. Everything is anchored in that, in this text. God became human. Jesus is both fully God and fully human, two natures, complete natures, unmixed, in the same person. One person, two natures. That is why he cares, because he is fully human. There was a a little gathering of bishops in A.D. 451 in the little town of Chalcedon. You may have heard of that, which is now, I think, just a district of Istanbul. Um, This was a fun time. A bunch of bishops got together, a lot of controversy in the church, and they had to define... Just who is Jesus that they worship? Is he God? Is he a man? Is he both? Is he sometimes God and sometimes man? Is it two-thirds God and one-third man? What is it? All these different opinions. And what the church leaders did at the time, they gave us this gift, this formula, this Chalcedonian definition. And that is that Jesus is both God and human, Two full natures, perfectly combined in one person. Two natures, one person. Unless we get this, we can't understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus. We can't answer the questions, the two questions, in the positive. One person, two natures. If our God is also human as Chalcedon claims, as Scripture claims. If our God lived the same life that we live, if He has gone through the same experiences that I am going through, 
Even more than that, if he has struggled as we do, then he certainly cares and he certainly understands what I'm dealing with. Look at how our text states it. This is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Double negative. We don't have a high priest who can sympathize. Meaning we do have a high priest who does sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who's gone through the same experiences through the same struggles, through the same temptations that we bring to Him, and thus He can understand and sympathize with us. Now, how does He do that? On the basis of which experiences can He do that? What is the weakness that is in question here? Two things. Number one, His temptation. Number two, His suffering. Number one, His temptation. He cares because He has been tempted as we are, as our text tells us. He has been tempted as we are being tempted. When we come to God for help in temptation, we need to know that He totally understands what we are dealing with. That God, who is a holy being, completely understands temptation. So when I come to Him and I say, I am tempted with lust, He actually understands what I mean when I say that. Now, how is that possible? It is possible because this God that I'm talking to has lived my life. And He went through my experiences. And He was tempted as I am, yet without sin. In Christ, God took upon Himself full humanity. And He now knows experientially what it means to be tempted. This is absolutely incredible. That when you talk to God and you say, I am tempted with gluttony, I am tempted with lust, I am tempted with greed, God knows, yes, I understand. I know. I have experienced it. And I can sympathize with your weakness because I too was weak and was tempted. No one can say, God doesn't understand what I am dealing with. He's God. He's never been tempted to sin. No one can claim that. Because Jesus, in fact, was tempted as we are, in the same manner as we are. And Jesus, our high priest, does understand exactly what we are going through. Exactly what we are going through. Because He was tempted Himself. Now, someone might be thinking right now, But Jesus never gave in to temptation. Our text is very clear. He was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. He never sinned. He never actually uh, stopped resisting temptation and gave in to it. And so the question is, does he really understand? He was tempted, but he never sinned. He never went that far, right? Can he really relate to what I'm dealing with? Because I have sinned. I know what sin is. Can he really understand what I'm going through since he has not sinned? I'd like to propose to you that the fact that he successfully resisted temptation actually makes him relate to us better. 
Listen to C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. Lewis says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Lewis just wants to tell you exactly what he thinks about this. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Do you follow the argument here? Someone says, you don't know what temptation is like because you've never given in. Lewis says, you don't know what temptation is until you resist it and continue to resist it and never give in. Because you experience the level and the degree and the strength of that temptation that other people have not because they gave in too early. Christ, who has never given in, has experienced the degree of temptation that none of us will ever experience. And so he is able to sympathize with us. He understands. Now, in other words, I can never go to Christ and say, you don't understand how hard this temptation is. Because he will say, I've experienced temptation to the degree that you will never experience temptation. And I never give in. And so you can be sure that I know exactly what it feels like to be tempted to the extreme. And thus he understands. Now secondly, he cares. We're answering our first question, does God care? He cares because he has suffered what we are suffering. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus is personally and intimately familiar with all types of suffering. There's nothing that we can bring to him that he will say, I've never done that. Can't help you here. He has actually experienced all types of suffering. Not every specific suffering, but all types of suffering, and thus he can relate to us. Listen to one commentator. He says, Christians have in heaven a high priest with an unequaled capacity for sympathizing with them in all the dangers and sorrows and trials which come their way in life. Because he himself, by virtue of his likeness to them, was exposed to all these experiences. Yet he endured triumphantly every form of testing that men, mankind can endure without any weakening of his faith in God or any relaxation of his obedience to him. 
Now, as you read through the Gospels, notice how many different kinds of experiences Jesus had. He lived a full life. Remember, he didn't just come and then died and resurrected and left. He had a full life. So he knows exactly what we feel, what we deal with, what we think, and all sorts of various kinds of experiences. For example, he has experienced all the stages of human development. From the womb, to infant, to toddler, to child, to teenager, to adult. I once preached a sermon in Chicago entitled, The Tween Jesus. The, the passage about the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. Silly name, but a profound truth. And the profound truth is that Jesus was 12 at one point. And so any 12-year-old, any tween, in between, right, the child and teenager, any tween can go to Jesus, and Jesus understands exactly what they're going through. So if you're a tween, if you're a teen, if you're a child, if, if you are a youth, as we call them, youth, Jesus knows exactly what you are going through. Because he was that. He went through all those experiences. I mean, it's, it's an, again, things I'm talking about are incredible to think about. God became human, not just human, but became human in every sense that humanity is. And so he actually went through all the stages of our development. He grew, and he learned, and he became something. And he formed relationships, and he was in a family, he was in a village, he was in a community. He had a job. I mean, he knows everything that we're dealing with from his experience. Jesus lived a life full of loud cries and tears. If you have a particular struggle in your life, chances are that Jesus went through it. And if he didn't go through a particular struggle you're dealing with, he went through something similar. And so he wrestled with the same emotions, the same ambitions, the same understanding and struggles and confusion that you are dealing with today. I'll name a few of these, and I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but read the Gospels and you will see all of these things in Jesus' life. Rejection. Are you struggling with rejection? Broken relationships? Well, he certainly did that. Rejected by his own family, his disciples, his friends. Losing a loved one, grieving over someone, Lazarus, his own dad, Joseph. The stressfulness of working a job. He worked a job. He went to work. He did things. He interacted with clients and customers and those kind of things. He worked with his hands. I mean, he understands. Poverty, homelessness. Jesus, you don't understand what I'm going through. Oh, yes, he does. Exactly because he had similar experiences that you have. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, the Son of Man has nowhere to put his head. Homelessness, poverty, physical pain. 
I was thinking about disability. I was thinking that, you know, the, the pain and the, the, the broken body, that's easy to understand. If you dealt with any sort of pain in your life, you, you know Jesus can relate to that. But what about disability? I was thinking about that this week, thinking, does he understand? Can a person with disability relate to Jesus? Can Jesus relate to him or her? And the answer is yes, because on the cross, he was limited against his will. His body couldn't work the same way it was supposed to work. His mind couldn't work the way it was supposed to work. His heart couldn't engage the way it's supposed to work. It's a forced disability. He understands limitations. Mental anguish. Many of us deal with various levels of anxiety, depression, some of it circumstantial, some of it clinical, the brain, the chemistry of your brain just can't function properly. And so you have these thoughts, you don't know where they come from, you don't know what to do with them. It paralyzes you. Does Jesus understand that? Yeah, he does. On the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the level of anxiety, the level of mental anguish is similar to what you're thinking, what you're dealing with. Marginalization. Oppression. Can he understand that? Can he relate to our experience of that? Yes. A fugitive, a refugee, an immigrant, early in his life. Oppressed and in fact put to death by the government. So when you come to him, he understands whatever you are struggling with. Many more examples could be used. But he understands exactly what you are struggling with. This verse probably, the verse about loud cries and, and uh, prayers being offered up, probably talks about the Garden of Gethsemane and the anguish and the agony of praying to God. He's crying out to God, who's able to deliver him from death. And it says that God heard him. But we know that he died. So how, could, how do we reconcile that? That he prayed, God heard him because of his reverence, because of his obedience to God, and yet he still died. Well, the answer is that God heard him in bringing him back from death. The resurrection is the answer to Jesus' prayer, deliver me. And the way it helps us is we see that he experienced suffering to a much greater degree than we ever can. When we pray, God deliver me, we need to remember that Jesus was not delivered until after death. And just like in temptation, he goes farther than we ever could. In suffering, he went farther than we ever will. Jesus understands. He can sympathize with our weakness. God cares. Secondly, God can help us. Can God help us? Yes, God can help us. Does he have the resources to help us? Yes, he does. Jesus is not only human and thus able to care, he's also fully God with all the resources of God committed to helping us. We know he is able to help us because God became human, because God died, because Jesus rose again. These are all incredible expressions of his power and control over circumstances. And it shows us that if God did that, 
If God in Christ was born and actually changed His nature, added a whole new nature forever to Him in one person, God and, and human being together. If God, the eternal God, died on the cross, if, if Jesus was brought back from death, death conquered now, if God did all of that, He has committed all of His resources, all of His power to helping us. Please hear me now. If God does not help us now, when we come to Him, when we come to the throne of grace and ask for help, if He does not help us, He will negate all that He has done in Christ so far. It will be a change in His plan. Because of all that He has done so far, He will consistently continue to help you. Listen to Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book on this, on the end of chapter 4. It's called The Heart of Christ. It's a great book. Highly recommended to you. He, he dwells for the length of the book on, on those few verses. Goodwin says, Christ must cease to be a man if he continue not to be merciful. In other words, if he stops helping you, he will stop being human. The incarnation will be undone. See, in the very plot of his becoming a man was that he might be merciful to us and that in a way so familiar to our apprehensions as our own hearts give the experience of the like in which otherwise as God he was not capable of. Let me translate this. He's saying because he became like us, he, he has experienced all these things about us, he now knows he couldn't before as God, now as a human being, he knows what we are dealing with. And add but this bold word to it, though true one, that he may now as soon cease to be God as to be a man. In other words, for God not to help us would mean that Christ would have to stop being a man and he would stop being God. Can God help me? Yes, He can help me with as much assurance as I have that He became a human being and that He remains God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where does this, this promise take place? What are the circumstances of His offer to help us? Everything is happening at the throne of grace. This means that if we come to God and we ask this question, can He help us? Does He care? Can He help us? He says, I will help you because I have decided to meet with you at the throne of grace. He calls that meeting place the throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment. Not a throne of indifference. Not a throne of rejection. But a throne of grace. Meaning that whatever you come to me with, I will understand and I will help you. A place where God helps us because He understands where we are dealing with is called the throne of grace. Now most scholars read this text with the Day of Atonement in view. The throne of grace corresponds to its counterpart in the earthly temple, the mercy seat. Now remember, this is a comparison temple, Aaron, sacrifices versus Jesus, the new covenant. 
So the mercy seat at the temple is the counterpart for the throne of grace. Now on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest for that year, a descendant of Aaron, would go into the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost chamber of the temple. So in the temple, the, the, the room that's, that's most hidden, that you're only allowed to go in as a high priest once a year. And as he would go in there, he would find above the Ark of the Covenant this big box where they stored sacred things like, like the testimonies, the commandments of God. On top of that box, there was a mercy seat. This is what God says about the mercy seat in Exodus 25, verse 22. God says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. God says, You want to meet with me? We meet at the mercy seat. I will speak to you at the mercy seat through the high priest that is only able to get there once a year to the secret room in the temple, and I will speak with him and with the people through him. Why? Why the mercy seat? Why make this connection between the mercy seat and the throne of grace where everybody is now welcome to come with confidence through the high priest, Jesus? What happened at that mercy seat? Sacrifices were brought. Very special sacrifices were brought on that one day, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. The priest would bring the perfect lamb and it will be put on the mercy seat and the blood would be spilled. And on the basis of that sacrifice, at the mercy seat, God will meet with his people. Jesus, the high priest, is not like Aaron. He has passed through the heavens not just through the inner rooms of the temple, but through the heavens. He goes directly to God, and on behalf of the people, he brings the perfect sacrifice that allows us to come into the Holy of Holies, into the temple, into the presence of God, to the throne of grace, anytime we need. And we do so with confidence. The Aaronic priest came into the Holy of Holies with tremendous hesitation and fear. Is this sacrifice going to be right? Have I sufficiently atoned for my sins that I am not struck dead there so they have to pull me out by a rope that's tied to my ankle? They did those things because they were scared. But in our text, it says we come with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? Because the sacrifice that Jesus brought is enough to ensure ongoing consistent, effective ministry of the high priest. And so that any time we go into the temple, through Christ, through the high priest Jesus, we are welcomed in God's presence. If the old word was fear, the new word is confidence. Now listen carefully. For God not to help us when we come to him through Jesus to the throne of grace, is to reject Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. Does he care? Yes, he cares. Will he help us? Yes, because if he decides not to help us, he is rejecting the sacrifice of his own son. This is how this works. These are the mechanics of priesthood. 
Can God help us? Will He help us? Does He care? Yes, 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 and amen. Now what then? I leave you with these two encouragements. Number one, hold fast that confession. Don't leave the faith. I'm talking to children. I'm talking to teens. I'm talking to spouses of people who drag them to church. I'm talking to drifters. You've been tempted to walk away. You've been, you have been walking away. You've been moving away from Christ. And I'm telling you, don't go. Do not turn away. And if you're a kid or a teenager, there will be a time when you will have your own choice. And you will say, maybe I won't go to church anymore. Maybe I won't be with Jesus anymore. Do not go. Don't turn away from Him. Stick with Him. Because God cares. And because God can actually help you. Hold fast your confession. And secondly, so the first, don't turn away from Him. Stick with Him. The second one is, do turn to Him. Turn to your high priest. Do not live as a functional atheist. How many Christians live functionally as atheists? You look at your life and you say, I don't live any differently as if I would live if I didn't believe in God. Is that your life? Do you go to Him confidently to the throne of grace and you bring your struggles to Him? And you believe because you have been convinced by Christ that He does care and that He does help you? That's the life of a Christian. It's that consistent, confident approach of the throne of grace through Christ, His sacrifice in His high priestly ministry. What does it look like for you in your life? Prayer, scripture reading, church, service, whatever that is, look at your life. Live functionally as if you believe in this high priest. 